0: Before we begin, I have a very special and important announcement, and I want you to listen carefully. Our organization Torch is a nonprofit, meaning that the only way we can pay for our expenses, the only way we could support our team of five rabbis and rebbitsons, our support staff, pay rent and do all the wonderful work of Torch and all the amazing podcasts. The only way we could do that is via the generosity of our friends and our supporters. That's the only way we can pay for our expenses. And our organization has a philosophy that we don't try to fundraise every day of the year. We try to compress a year's worth of fundraising into one week. In one week, we try to raise the bulk of our operating expenses, and that week is right now. You appreciate our work. You enjoy our podcasts. You find our offerings to be interesting and educational and valuable and compelling. We need your support to keep it going. So today... I'm asking you for your friendship and support and generosity and asking you to visit givetorch.org and make a donation to our organization. The link is in the description, givetorch.org, and to sweeten the deal, every donation will be tripled. A $100 donation will equal $300 for Torch. A $1,000 donation will equal a $3,000 donation to Torch. So give what you can give and amplify your donation and help make the campaign a success. If everyone who is listening right now gives what they can give, the campaign will be a success and torch will be bright for another year. Without your support, I wouldn't be making podcasts. Torch would fold. I'd be selling mortgages or cabinets or work in healthcare or I don't know, become a lawyer. But thanks to our supporters. Torch is teaching and spreading Torah and Jewish wisdom and the rich Jewish heritage on a never-before-seen scale. Just via the podcast in 2020, we merited to do 162 new episodes, almost a half a million downloads, perennially listed on the top charts of the category of Judaism on iTunes, and I want to stress that accomplishment is not mine. It's not even the accomplishment of the great team at Torch. That is the handiwork of all of you who supported our organization. Us together, we accomplished that goal. In our eyes here at Torch, our donors are really our investors. Whatever merit we get from the unprecedented amount of Torah that we spread, it's divided between us, the team at Torch, and the donors slash investors who support our work. So please pause this podcast and visit givetorch.org and give what you can give to support Torch and to support the podcasts. This is an online fundraiser. It's a matching fundraiser. Every donation will be tripled. There's a link in the description of this podcast. So I'm asking you to please pause the podcast and visit givetorch.org and support Torch and support the podcasts. Now, I know from previous years that some of the listeners will say, you know what, Rabbi, you convinced me. And they're going to come out of the woodwork and support the campaign when I make the annual appeal. They're going to pause the episode, go to givetorch.org, and give what they can give. But many of y'all are not going to be convinced. And they're going to say, oh no, the rabbi is doing his annual promo. He's doing his annual appeal. When will I finally get to the actual content of the episode that I want to listen to? And they're going to skip 30 seconds ahead. Oh, he's still doing it. Skip another 30 seconds ahead. Oh, when is this going to end? So every year, I try to persuade even the skeptics that supporting Torch is a very worthy cause. And how am I going to persuade you this year? Well, this year, I'm doing something unprecedented and probably something a bit foolish. I may very well regret this. This may be a terrible idea, but let's give it a shot. If you need help Being convinced to support Torch at DFTorch.org, Pull out your phone. Go to your contacts. Type in the name Yaakov Wolby. That's me. The email address you already know, rabbiwolbygmail.com. And you put in the phone number 713-301-3611. 713-301-3611. And then you go to your messaging app and you send me a text with the words, I need to be persuaded. And I will call you up, and I will personally persuade you to support Torch at givetorch.org. This is very important to me. I really would love to have 100% participation of the podcast audience. I view the podcast audience as a big distributed family, and I want everyone on board to support This campaign. If you've never given to Torch, this is a fantastic time to do it. Give what you can give. If you already are part of our donor/slash investor class, push yourself to give a little more. You will not regret it. Partner with me. Give what you can. 2021, you're gonna be on Team Wolby, on Team Torch, Team Spreading Torah and our rich Jewish heritage throughout the world. Support the Parsha podcast. Support the Jewish History Podcast, support Torah 101, support This Jewish Life, support the Mitzvah Podcast, support the Ethics Podcast, support all the wonderful, fantastic work of Torch. I know it's hard, but this is worth it. Push yourself and give what you can give at givetorch.org. You won't regret it. A few practical things you can donate via PayPal. If you prefer to send a check, email me and I'll make it easier for you. We started accepting Bitcoin and other crypto via Coinbase. And in fact, we've already gotten several Bitcoin donations. But you'll need to email me to set that up. We'll do it. Rabbojima.com. Take care of it. If I have your phone number, I plan on giving you a call this week to solicit your support for this campaign. So be on the lookout for that. You could choose which podcast to support which Torch teams to support. There's all kinds of cool sponsorship opportunities. You could support the Torch podcast microphone and studio. You could dedicate your favorite Torch podcast. You could sponsor an episode. Every donation of $360 or more will receive a signed copy of my upcoming book, Upon a 10-Stream Tarp, which is set to be released in the coming months. All that on GiveTorch.org. The link is in the description. Thank you for another amazing year of Torch Podcasts. I am eternally grateful to you for your support and your friendship throughout the years. Thank you for listening. Please, God, the campaign will be a smashing success and Torch will have another fabulous year and then about a year from now, next March, we're going to have another tough business meeting, another annual appeal and that's the only appeal you're going to hear from me for the next year. So thank you for listening and now... Enjoy. The podcast. This is a topic that I've never spoken about and I'm really excited about it. It's a fun topic. It's an interesting topic. It's something that we are always familiar with. It's something we do all the time. But because we are so familiar with it, it's something which flies under the radar and we don't, in my opinion, spend sufficient time to think about what we're doing. And that is the topic of the Havdalah. Havdala, is the ceremony that we do at the end of Shabbat and the end of festivals. And it contains some very interesting and mystical rituals, some really unusual customs and practices. And they all have a lot of uh, fascinating backgrounds and reasons for why we do it. We're going to talk about Adam and Eve and their sin and what happened in the aftermath of the sin. We're going to spend some time talking about the special role that fingernails play in Jewish philosophy And we're going to start, as we always try to do with the basics, to try to lay out the landscape, and then we'll try to drill down and see what the ceremony is all about and what it can teach us. Now, in researching the subject, I've discovered that there are boatloads of insights into the Havdalah ceremony. So we're not going to cover it all, but we're going to hit the highlights. So let's start with the basics. The Torah tells us this is part of the Ten Commandments, that we have to remember the Shabbos. And our Sages tell us that what does that mean? It means we have to coronate the Shabbos when it starts, and that's the Kiddush service that we do on Friday night. And then when Shabbat is over, we also have to make a ceremony to indicate the end of Shabbat, and that is the Havdalah ceremony. Now, there's a discussion amongst the commentaries which part is torah and which part is rabbinic. According to the Rambam, they're both torah But regardless, this is a mitzvah that originates 10 commandments to remember the Shabbat, to sanctify the Shabbat, and to make a certain demarcation at the beginning of Shabbat and at the end of Shabbat. These are the bookends of this very important day. Now, what is Havdalah? Havdalah, the word Havdalah means to separate. And that is because we want to make a separation between the holy and the mundane, between the Shabbat and the weekday. It's been now Friday. Friday, Shabbat starts. And then we have all Friday night and Saturday, Shabbat morning and all through Shabbat afternoon. And once it's Saturday evening, Shabbat is over. We make a ceremony, the Havdalah ceremony, and that's going to separate between the Shabbos and the weekday. The halacha tells us that this is such an important end cap to the Shabbat, that until you do the Havdalah, you're not supposed to do any work and you're not supposed to eat anything. In fact, the Halacha states that if you don't have wine to make Havdalah, you're only going to get wine, let's say, Sunday morning. You're supposed to wait until Sunday morning before you eat. And the Havdalah ceremony, in prayer, there is also part of the prayer that we do on Saturday evening in the Myrev prayer, Part of the prayer, there's a special insertion that goes into the blessing of Chonin Adast, a blessing that is a special Havdalah blessing. And finally, after prayer is over, and you make the Havdalah, the familiar Havdalah ceremony that we're familiar with, on a cup. And I want to quickly run through what the basic components of the Havdalah ceremony is, and then we'll go a little bit deeper. So some people have accustomed to stand. Some sit. You pour the wine or grape juice into a nice goblet. In the event that someone does not have wine or grape juice, you would use what's called a respectable beverage like beer or, or tea or coffee. And you're supposed to pour more than the, than the cup could actually handle so that it overflows. A little bit of the wine spills over. And you're supposed to have your spices with you. And you're supposed to have a candle with multiple intertwined wicks, so a single candle wouldn't be sufficient. You could take two candles and put them together, or one like havdalah candle that we that we're familiar with that has multiple intertwined wicks. I did see something in one of the great commentaries, the tour, and this is something which made me real happy. He says, "Mitzvah min hamuvchar, the best choicest kind of mitzvah is when you don't take a candle." Rather, you take an avutra. Well, What's an avuka? An avutra is a torch. That's the best kind of thing to do. And me, as an employee of torch, made me really happy to read that. So you light the candle slash torch. You hold the goblet in your right hand. And you start the Avdallah ceremony. And it starts with a beautiful introduction about how we trust God. God's our salvation. We're not scared. The Lord is my strength and my song. We go through a lot of these verses in Psalms. The Almighty is a refuge for us. Happy is the man who trusts in you, Lord. And then we make the blessing over the wine. And we're told that everyone should look at the wine during the blessing. And after you finish the blessing for wine, you switch your hands and you take the cup The goblet that was in your right hand, and you move it to your left hand, and you take the spices now in your right hand, and you say the blessing for the spices, and everyone smells the spices. And once again, you switch the goblet back to your right hand, and they make the blessing over fire, and everyone examines their fingernails in the fire. And finally, you make the fourth and final blessing, blessed are you Hashem, who separates between the holy and the mundane, between the light and the darkness, between Israel and the nations, between the seventh day, i.e. Shabbat, and the rest of the week. Baruch Hashem, you Hashem. Hamavdil ben Kodesh l'chol. Who separates, who distinguishes between holy and mundane. And then you drink the wine sitting. And unlike Kiddush, it's not distributed to all. And then you extinguish the candle or the torch with the wine. We don't blow it out. And then there are all kinds of various customs. So for example, some have a custom to take a little bit of the leftover wine or grape juice and to dab their pinkies in it and to rub it on their eyes and eyebrows and then to stick their pinkies into their pockets And the custom here is, or the reason behind it is, that apparently it demonstrates that you really love the mitzvah. And I was always told that if you take the wine and you put it on your eyes, you'll become a great Torah scholar. Oh, and then I was also told that if you take the wine on your pinkies and put them in your pockets, you'll become rich. And I have this memory as a kid, seeing someone after the Havdalah dipping their, Paintings in and sticking into all pockets. He was wearing a jacket. The inner pockets, the outer pockets, the side pockets, the lapel pockets, the back pockets—just all the pockets. He really wanted to make it big. Now, after the candles been extinguished, some have a custom to actually smell the havdala candle that's been extinguished. I remember hearing—and this one I actually cannot verify. Did not see this in my research today. I remember hearing that the smell of the Havdalah candle after it's been extinguished that mimics the aroma of paradise I guess we have something really exciting to look forward to some have accustomed to sing a Havdalah song some sing a song about Elijah the prophet you make the after blessing on the wine and the week commences that is Havdalah in a nutshell and on the most basic level The idea behind it is just like we kick-started Shabbat with fire and with wine by the Kiddush, and we light, of course, the candles on Shabbat, we end the Shabbat, the end cap of Shabbat is the same. We take the wine, we take the fire, and we make everyone recognize that what we are bookending over here is something very important and something worthy of our attention. That's the basics. What I want to do today is to try to go a bit deeper into this mitzvah, into the various customs of this ceremony, and to try to discover what secrets they contain. So let's start with this particular time. Shabbat has been finished, and now we're in the normal week. It's, I guess halachically we would say it's, it's now already Sunday. Because it's the eve of Sunday. And whenever we try to understand the power or the essence of a given time, it's always important for us to try to go back in history and try to find the first time that that particular point in the calendar or in the week happened. So for example, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the first six days, if you look at the prayers that are designated for each one of those days, they correspond to what happened in Genesis on day one, two, three, four, five, six, And then, of course, Shabbat corresponds to 7. The reason why we celebrate the Shabbat is because that's the day that God ceased to create, and therefore we cease to create. Well, when was the first what's called Motzei Shabbos? I.e., when was the first Saturday night after Shabbos? So sages tell us that Adam and Eve they sinned on the day that they were created namely on Friday and they really should have been booted from the garden on Friday but they got a reprieve and they might says you know what Shabbat I'm not going to kick you out on Shabbat they were allowed to stay in the garden on Shabbat and then Shabbat finished And they were bounced from the garden. Moreover, for the duration of Shabbat, and really the 12 hours of Friday that they existed, there was a primordial light, the light that the Almighty hid. So if you remember in Genesis, it talks about day one, the Almighty created light, light and darkness. On day four, the Almighty creates the sun a source of light. So our sages tell us that there was an earlier primordial light that the Almighty said, you know what, this light's too powerful, we're going to hide it. But he didn't hide it until Shabbat ended. So when Shabbat ended, not only are Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of the protective confines of the garden, but they no longer have access to that light. And they're sent into darkness. This is a time of tremendous diminished stature, of tremendous depression. Of course that's true with Adam, but that's really the essence so to speak of the time. And it's not only Adam that experiences a decline with the conclusion of Shabbat. Our Sages tell us that when Shabbat begins, Each one of us is endowed with an extra soul. You have one soul during the week, and then you have an extra soul. The commentaries talk about that. What does that mean? Do you have two souls? Is it an expanded soul? What exactly is the nature of the extra soul is a huge discussion. But on Shabbat, we have a neshama yaseira, an extra soul. And then comes almost a Shabbos. Shabbos is over, and the soul is taken away. And we feel a void, and we feel a vacuum. We had all that extra holiness and connection, and that's been with us since the inception of Shabbat, and now it's lost. And we too feel a decline, a dip, a depression. And it's not only us living humans, the Talmud tells us that the sinners in Gehenom, when Shabbat comes, they're taken out of Gehenom and they don't suffer at all for the duration of Shabbat. And then once Shabbat ends, they too are thrust back into their misery. So it's almost like humanity really experiences a very sharp, precipitous decline with the end of Shabbat. And by the way, some of the sources talk about how it's very important when you finish Shabbat to kind of delay the end of Shabbat as much as possible. Because the longer we're able to hold out and stay in Shabbat, the better off those sinners are in Yahinim. In fact, there's a custom that the, the first words of of the Arvit prayer that, that really signals the end of Shabbat, the, the words are, Vuhu rachum yechaperavon. He is the merciful one, and he will forgive our sins. So there's a custom That when you say the word, vehu rachum, and he is merciful, you say, vehu, you kind of elongate the beginning of the word, vehu rachum. It's like almost many, many synagogues in the world, you'll see that that's how they start only on Saturday night. And the idea is we're giving like a few extra seconds to those poor chaps who are in Yehannim. Because once we end Shabbat, their Shabbat ends as well. So we have a time in the week that really is a time of sadness and depression. We just came out of the ecstasy and the joy and the transcendence of Shabbat. And now we're going back to the rest of the week. But not only that, we've lost something. And we feel it most palpably right when Shabbat ends. The objective of the Havdalah is to try to mitigate the effect of that decline. It's an attempt to drag some of the holiness and the serenity and the bliss and the elevated stature of Shabbat, to drag it with us into the dark, foreboding abyss of non-Shabbat life. So it's interesting We mentioned there's four blessings that we say during the Havdalah ceremony. The first one's on wine, which is yayin, wine. And the next one is besamim, which is spices. And then comes the blessing on ner, which is the candle. And finally, the fourth blessing, which is havdalah, i.e. the havdalah, separation. If you look at the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, he says there's a mnemonic to remember this order. And that is Yibaneh, which means it will be built. Meaning, even though you just lost something, you feel like it all collapsed, and it was all destroyed, it will still be built. Alternatively, it can be read as Yavneh. Now, for those of us who have some familiarity with Jewish history, we know that the city of Yavneh was a very important city in Jewish life. Yavneh. That was the city where all the sages coalesced after the temple and after Jerusalem was destroyed. The time period of history, of Jewish history, that most relates to this time of the week is right after the destruction of the temple. What happened right after the destruction of the temple? Jerusalem was smoldering. Jews were slaughtered, were massacred. But there was one flicker of hope. And that is that the sages managed to survive, and were coalesced in Yavne. And they had already started the process of rebuilding our people. And therefore, when we have the Havdalah ceremony, and we have those four blessings in a row that spell out Yavne, it's to remind us that even after the destruction, after the loss, there is the spark of hope and optimism that we have the ability perhaps to rebuild what we have lost. So let's go through the four blessings one by one, because there are all kinds of secrets and interesting insights that fit into this attempt, if you will, to try to wrestle with this time of the week. So the Talmud tells us that there are three people who merit inheriting Olam Haba, the world to come. And they are someone who lives in Israel. If you live in the land of Israel, you're breathing, so to speak, holy air all the time. And therefore, you're destined for eternity in the afterlife. And if someone raises their sons to study Torah, he too is a candidate to receive Olam Haba. And finally, when someone does have Dala with wine, they too are assured that they're going to merit the afterlife. And the Talmud tells us, someone has a little bit of wine, and they save it for the end of Shabbat? That is something so wonderful. So there's something very, very important the Talmud tells us about the wine ceremony of the Havdalah. So we have this custom to overfill the cup. You pour more than the cup could handle, and it spills out. And what's the reason for that? You know, typically... We don't, we're not wasteful. In fact, there's a prohibition against wasting. So why are we spilling out some wine? So the commentaries tell us that this is based upon a teaching of the Talmud. The Talmud says that any home that doesn't have wine flowing like water, that home will not see blessing. And therefore, if you want to kickstart a week of blessing, What do you do? You take some wine and you let it spill like water. No one really cares if some water spills. Wine's very expensive. So people like to care. But if you're so rich and you have so much blessing, then it doesn't really matter if some wine spills. And therefore, we want to have blessing to say, oh, it doesn't matter if the wine spills. That's the simple interpretation. But one of the commentaries says something very fascinating. He says that if you actually read the Talmud very carefully, it doesn't say that you're supposed to spill wine like water. It's not what it says. It says that if there is wine that gets spilled, and you treat it as if it was just water, and you don't get angry, and you don't scream, and you don't make a big deal about it, if you are able to kind of control yourself when bad things happen, when mistakes happen, and if you have ever been around kids, you know that spills happen all the time, and you're able to control yourself, that home is going to be endowed with blessing. And there's a very powerful idea here. The time period of the Havdalah is one where the worst mistake or certainly the consequences of the worst, worst mistake of humanity were manifested. You know, Adam and Eve were like angels and suddenly they're booted out and they're regular standard humans who have been diminished. They are reeling from the consequences of their mistake. And therefore on the anniversary, so to speak, the weekly anniversary of this mistake, it's important for us to realize that there's a way to make a blessing out of it. There's a way to find some positivity from that. And that is the way you respond to such a mistake that will determine how much blessing you get. If you're able to say, you know what? Mistakes happen, We made a mistake. Let's try to rebuild from here. Then you are going to be recipient of blessing. Now, I did see the Kabbalists say something scary. They say that the reason why we pour a little bit of wine that's supposed to drop on the floor is that the sinners are going back to hell now. And therefore, we want to drop a little bit of wine, so to speak, to try to give some positive influence of this mitzvah their way, which I thought was uh, interesting that we're so considerate, so to speak, of of these sinners, you know, there was, I think, an attitude that we could have had to say, well, they're sinners, they're there for a reason, it's all for the best and the like, yet we try to kind of minimize how much they're suffering and try to throw them a bone. How Whatever that means, it's a very tabalistic idea that by us pouring wine on the ground, we're somehow benefiting those sinners. But it is an interesting idea, I think, in general for us to know that certainly not – On Matzah Shabbos, when Shabbos ends, we don't have the attitude of, let the sinner suffer, they have it coming. Okay, so that's the first blessing that we have, the blessing of the wine. And we make the blessing, we don't drink the wine until we finished all of the four blessings. So after the wine, what comes next? We have the blessing of smelling of the spices. Now, why are we smelling spices when Shabbat ends? We don't do it when Shabbat begins. There really is no other time in the Jewish calendar that we have a designated mitzvah to smell spices. So the commentaries tell us something fascinating. They go back to the Talmud that says that on Friday you have an extra soul or an expanded soul, and comes along Matzah Shabbos. Shabbos ends, and your soul has been diminished. And the commentaries tell us that. Of all the senses, the one that's most associated with the soul is smell. Smell, we're told, is something that the soul benefits from and not the body. In fact, one of the Hebrew words for for a soul is ruach. I mean, it's not necessarily for a soul. It's a component of the soul's ruach, which shares the Hebraic root as the word reach, which means the smell or a smell or an aroma. This reminds me, my grandfather, bless the memory, he used to say that if you look in, in Exodus, when the Exodus happens, so the scripture states that it's going to be such pandemonium amongst the Egyptians, but amongst the Jewish people, it's going to be quiet. And even the dogs are going to stop barking. A very strange line that we read in chapter 11 of Exodus. So what's the significance of the fact that that on the eve of the Exodus, the dogs are not barking. So my grandfather said that the Talmud says that a dog has chutzpah, it has gumption. Well, why does a dog have chutzpah? Because a chutzpah, like kind of this brazenness, that is associated with thinking you're superior. The dog, my grandfather said, this is a Kabbalistic idea, the dog thinks it is more spiritually acute than us because it has a better sense of smell. And when a dog comes over to you and barks at you, on a Kabbalistic level, it's trying to say, I'm better than you. I'm better than you because I have a better sense of smell. And the smell is the, that's the ability of the soul. And therefore, I have it. You don't. I'm better than you. And then what happens on the eve of the Exodus? The Jewish people experience revelation. They have the Almighty swooping in, and he himself is intervening, destroying our enemies, and saving us. Passing over the homes. It's a remarkable day. Even the dogs stop barking. Even the dogs acknowledge on this night that they have no claim to say that they are superior to us. Interesting idea, but it does fit in well with this, with this concept that we're told here in the commentaries that the reason why we're, we're smelling the spices is we're trying to mollify and assuage the soul for what it lost. And there are a few different ways to phrase it. Some say that the soul has been diminished. It was expanded and now it's less. It's weakened. And consequently, we have to appease it, and we appease it by giving it some spices. I did see one of the commentaries say that the spiritually weakest day of the week is Sunday. And then it builds up until you have the extra soul endowed to you on Saturday, on Shabbos, Friday Eve. And then all at once... You have the precipitous drop back from Shabbat, from the holiness, from the holiest status of the soul to the least holy right after Shabbat ends. And therefore the soul is weakened and it needs a boost. And you give it some spices, it has a boost, and now it could start the weed properly. A third way I sought to phrase this is that when we smell the besamim, the spices, after Shabbat, we're actually trying to draw the feeling of Shabbos into the week. Like we said, Shabbos is a day where our soul's happiest. It's got an extra soul, it's got an expanded soul, close relationship to God, a covenant between the Jewish people and God. It's paradise for the soul. And now we have an ability via the Basamim, via the spices, to try to take a little bit of that feeling and power and connection and draw it with us into the week. Some people have a custom to use hadassim, like myrtle branches, and they, mostly the safari communities, and they uh, try to get three different branches, bundle them together, and then you rub them to make sure that they actually have a smell. Some do cloves, and yet others actually have cloves mixed with the hadasim, mixed with the myrtle leaves, and that is the way you can fulfill all the requirements. The next blessing relates to fire. And again, this is the only time that we make a blessing on fire. If you're starting a bonfire or a barbecue, so you make a fire, but there's no blessing, me we don't make a blessing that God created fire. But in the Havdalah ceremony what do we do. And the Talmud tells us the reason for this is, and this is where it gets, I think, really interesting. The reason for this is because fire was created on Mose Shabbos on Saturday night, right after Shabbos. And the Talmud actually questions it says, Wait, when is that true? Don't you know the Talmud elsewhere tells us that fire was created on Friday? alongside all kinds of other interesting things, like the manna and the luchos. the Talmud says, wait a minute, how could fire be created on Friday, right at the twilight zone between Friday and Shabbos, and be created after Shabbos is over on Saturday night? And the Talmud tries to resolve this in all kinds of ways. It says, well, there's different fires. One is a regular fire. One's a fire of Gehennaum. Ultimately, the Talmud says like this, Fire was created on two dimensions. It was created بمحشava, in thought, and that dimension, it was created on Friday, but it wasn't in actuality and practice created until Saturday night. Then it tells us the story. It tells us that Adam, on Saturday night, the Almighty endowed him with intellect akin to divine intellect. And he took two stones and he rubbed them against each other until a spark came out and he made a fire. So it's as if Thomas telling us that Adam in this lowly depressed state, he invented fire. Now the midrash gives us some more color to this story. It tells us that ever since day one of creation, there was this primordial light. That if you had access to this light, you could see on multiple dimensions. You could see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. But the Almighty said, you know what, this is a bad idea to give to humanity. So he put it away. He hid it. And only the righteous people in the future and all will have access to this light. But Adam had access to it for 36 hours, 12 hours on Friday, and then 24 hours on Shabbat. And then Shabbat ended, and he lost the light. He lost the supernatural light, and he didn't even have access to the other light. So suddenly, his entire world starts growing dark. And remember, this is after his sin. And the Ray told him after the sin and he meted out the punishments, he tells Adam, you're going to have a big conflict with the snake. You're going to want to kill the snake. The snake's going to want to kill you. And now it's dark. And it's getting darker. And Adam is getting scared. He's getting terrified. He says, okay, the snake's coming. It's coming to bite me. And what did the Almighty do? Says the Midrash. The Almighty gave him two stones. And he started hitting them against each other. And a fire came out. And he had light. And he had illumination. And he had safety. And he had security. And he was so excited, he made a blessing. Borei mehorei, haesh. Blessed are you Hashem, who created fire. And therefore, On Saturday night, at that same time, we too make a fire, and we too make the same blessing. I think it's a very interesting idea here. You know, at this time in the storyline, Adam's been kicked out, and he's been demoted. He has no light, not the physical light, not the spiritual light. He has no protection. He's totally vulnerable, and he's sad and he's depressed, and he's forlorn. And this episode of the fire, it's almost reminding him there's hope. There's comfort. There's appeasement. I'm still with you, the Almighty says to him. You'll be okay. You'll get through this. You'll endure. That's the message of Havdalah. Yes, Shabbat ended. Yes, our soul's been diminished. Yes, there's a tough week upcoming. But you know what? We still have the fire, we still have the money on our side, and we still have the ability to get back to where we came from. Now it's interesting in Jewish philosophy, the stone, the Evan is considered to be the most inanimate thing. It's inert, it's lifeless. And the thing that's the most alive and maybe the most spiritual thing in the physical world is fire. So we have stones, totally physical, and we have fire, which is spiritual, which is dynamic, which is transformative. One of the names of Torah is orisa, from the word or, a light or fire. Talmud tells us that in the heavens, the Torah exists as black fire on top of white fire. So fire is a very holy spiritual thing. And how does Adam get fire? Taking two lowly stones and striking them against each other. I think this is another comforting and very kind of Havdalah-centric idea. Even though we lost the lofty stature of Shabbat, we're out of the garden, we used to be like Adam pre-sin, we used to be on that transcendental angelic level, And we lost it all. All we have are these dead, lifeless, inert, physical stones. We're reminded, even from a very lowly place, we can extract holiness and we can get fire. Even after we've been booted from the garden, we could still have light. There's hope. There's salvation. We could fix. We could remedy. We could... Repair the damage. We can be redeemed and saved. And after we make the blessing, we're told to look at our fingernails. What's the purpose of that? So, of course, the commentaries offer a variety of explanations. So, on a simple level, the commentaries tell us, well, your fingernails are really nice, and therefore, if you want to make a blessing on fire... You have to enjoy the fire and therefore you look at your fingernails so that way you could see something via the light of the fire so you can make a blessing and thank God for the fire. Others suggest, well, fingernails, they grow. You know, you you, you imagine your fingers grew like your fingernails. You have to chop them off every week. doesn't work like that. The only part of your body that grows on a consistent basis is your fingernails. Obviously, you would say hair as well, but the hair is considered almost like it's, it's outside of you. It's almost like it's more outside of you than inside of you. And there are there is a halachic precedent for that. Plus, your fingernails, you know, that's part of you, and it still grows. And therefore, it's almost like we want to get the blessing of being fruitful and multiplying like our fingernails. That's what some of the commentaries say. But most of the commentaries focus back to Adam. And we're told that Adam, before his sin, when he was still in the garden, his entire body was covered in fingernail material. He had this like Kevlar protection of fingernail material. That was his whole body. And then what happened? He sinned. And he lost all the protection. And he was devastated. He was depressed. And then he made it to the fire and he's looking at himself, he's like, oh no, what happened to me? I lost all my protection. And then he got to his fingernails and he saw, oh, There's a little bit of it left. And that brought him so much hope and so much positivity and inspiration and therefore we too reenact that. We look at our fingernails in the fire. Now some people have a custom to look at the crevices and the creases in the palm of their hand and therefore there's this ubiquitous custom to fold your knuckles inwardly so that way... With one glance, you could see both the palm of your hand and your fingernails. Now, what does it mean that Adam was all fingernail material? What does that even mean? Is that literal? It's a very interesting question, and it's a very difficult subject to try to penetrate. Now, fingernails do make some other notable appearances in Jewish literature. So, for example, the beautiful captive woman that's talked about in the book of Deuteronomy we're told that she has to let her fingernails grow. Maybe that's a hint. That's a clue. There's a very strange-sounding teaching in the Talmud Book of Nida, page 17a. It tells us that if someone cuts their fingernails and takes the nail clippings and throws them on the floor, and then a pregnant woman comes and watches over them, the Talmud says she can have a miscarriage. Now, what does that mean? It sounds like the strangest things I've ever heard, right? Why is it dangerous for a pregnant woman to walk over nail clippings? It's not at all clear. Says the Talmud, what are you supposed to do with your nail clippings? If you are a pious person, you burn them. If you are a righteous person, you bury them. And if you're a wicked person, you just throw them away. A lot of other people are exposed to danger. I was always trained you take your nail clippings and you flush them down the toilet. That's what I was always told. But what is the deal with this idea that the nails and the nail clippings specifically, that is something which is dangerous or harmful to pregnant women? So the commentaries grapple with this question and most of them suggest that it relates back to Adam and Eve. You know, the consequences of the sin in the garden... Is For Adam, of course, it's, you know, the brow, the sweat of your brow, you'll have to work really hard to make a living, you'll have lots of thorns, and for the woman, it relates to childbirth. And therefore, whenever there is an association, so to speak, with fingernails, there is the memory, so to speak, of the pre-sin version of humanity that we were all covered in this protective material, and therefore, just the existence of the clippings, so to speak, evokes the original sin. And we know that Eve, she was the one who gave the fruit to Adam and he ate. And therefore, that's how the commentaries rationalize. We have this uh, very strange sounding Talmud that the fingernail clippings are dangerous for pregnant women. Now, whatever the deep meanings behind this mystical idea is, there is something really fascinating that Adam, before his sin, was entirely covered in this material. This past week, I chanced upon an amazing teaching in the Benish Chai about hand washing. As we know, We're supposed to wash our hands at various times. You go to the cemetery, you wash your hands. You wake up in the morning, go to the bathroom before you eat. And it's an interesting ceremony why are you washing your hands. If your hands are perfectly clean, why would you need to wash them? So what he says is that at night, your soul goes, so to speak, upstairs for a little polishing, a little power washing, a little cleansing, and therefore there's a void in your body. And these demons come and they enter your body. And then what happens when the soul comes back to your body? The demons are like, oh no, the soul's here. We have to leave. We have to escape. And they run to your extremities. And therefore, they're hanging out on the tips of your fingers and the tips of your toes. And therefore, you got to be very careful what you do with your hands after you wake up because your hands are burying these little demons on them. Whatever that means, I don't know. It sounds like a very Kabbalistic, mystical idea. And he points out that in the temple, there was a kior, which is basically a washing basin. And the priests, before the watch in the temple, they would put their hands on their feet. They were barefoot. So you put your right hand on your right foot and your left hand on your left foot. And you would pour water from this kior over your hands and feet. And the idea behind it is the same idea that we're talking about with hand washing that you're trying to get rid of those little demons. And he tells us that, well, because the demons on your feet are so strong, you can't get rid of them. But the demons on your hand, you pour some water on it, you can get rid of them. And then he adds the germane sentence. He says, if we didn't have fingernails on the tips of our fingers, then even during the day, our... Hands would be impure and we wouldn't have the ability to get rid of those demons. So I have no idea what fingernails actually represent in this Jewish uh, philosophy or certainly in, in the Kabbalistic literature. I have no idea what it actually means. But we're told that Adam was entirely caked in it, entirely covered in it. And we're told over here that it was some sort of prophylactic against impurity. And the fact that we have a little bit of it, a little remnant, so to speak, of, of that, that is to our benefit to help us ward off whatever these mazitim are, whatever this, uh, these demons are. But I think there's a beautiful takeaway from, from this. Again, regardless of what exactly it means. You know, we're depressed on Saturday night. Adam was depressed. We are depressed. And there's a little hope. A little comfort. Adam made the fire. Okay, he could save himself from the snake. And he sees the tips of his fingers. And he's still got a little bit of that left. Adam's a totally different creature than the person who existed before the sin in the garden. Different person entirely. But he has a little hint of Adam pre-sin still within him. And you know what? We too, on Saturday night... After Shabbat is over, we're depressed. We look at the fire. We look at our little tips, little remnants of Adam pre that's still with us. And we remember or we are comforted by the fact that we still have a connection to that grand stature of humanity that existed before the sin. And we could still hope and aspire to be a little bit more like that. I had another thought about the fingernails. I actually spoke to a friend and a colleague of mine. I said to him, come on, tell me what what's the deal with the fingernails? What's actually happening with the fingernails? What's all these Talmuds about fingernails? What's going on? So he told me, he's like, fingernails are spooky. I don't want to go anywhere near all the Talmudic stuff on on fingernails. That's kind of the way I feel. But regardless, I had a very interesting and empowering thought. Talmud tells us that if there's nail clippings and a pregnant woman walks over it, well, that's going to evoke the sin of Adam and Eve and it could be dangerous for her. Well, what about if there's just nails? Maybe we should all wear gloves all the time. So that way we'll never evoke the sin of Adam and Eve and we'll save the women. Is that a good question? So here's what I want to speculate Adam before his sin was entirely covered in this nail material. It's not nail material because it's just body material, Kevlar. Holy Kevlar. But if Adam was entirely covered in that, then he didn't have nails that he would cut. Obviously it was completely covered. So he was entirely covered in this material whatever that means, but it didn't grow. And therefore, the fact that it grows and we have to clip it, that's an indication of sin. The fact that we have nails, well, that's that's the way things are supposed to be. But the fact that we have nail clippings, that's an indication of sin. Maybe we could speculate that. And consequently, I think this is also a very interesting takeaway from this whole subject. Adam, before his sin, was static, He was entirely holy like an angel covered in this magical material, nail material, but he was static. He couldn't grow. He couldn't progress. He couldn't change. He was frozen in place. It's a nice place to be covered in this nice nail material, but he was fixed. And look at us. What percentage of our body is like Adam-like? It's a tiny fraction of our entirety of being that is covered in this material. We're severely diminished. But you know what? We're dynamic. We have one thing that Adam doesn't have, and that is that we could grow, so to speak, our proverbial nails. We can change. We can improve ourselves. Adam was not capable of that. And therefore, I think there's a little bit of a, a hidden blessing amidst the curse. You know, we made the fire, and it's so sad, and we look at the pathetic little nails that we have left over compared to what we had before the sin, But on the other hand, I think it does contain a little bit of a silver lining in that we have something that Adam did not have, namely, we have more free will than he had, and we have more opportunity for improvement. Now, just to round out the fingernail literature, the Talmud tells us in the book of Yoma, page 9b, that the fingernails of the earlier ones... They were greater than the bellies of the latter ones. Again, such mysterious stuff. The fingernails of the earlier generations were better than the belly of the subsequent generations. Now, what does that mean? So, I did see some of the commentaries. And again, this is not related to Havdalah. Even though some of the commentaries do try to connect this to all the Havdalah literature, most of them don't. So I saw something interesting. The Ben Yehoyada says that when someone's eating a meal, so a small fraction of the food ends up on their fingernails or maybe under their fingernails, but 99.999% of it goes in their stomach. Says the Talmud, the fingernails of the earlier generations are better than the bellies of the later generations. Namely, the small little flecks of food, so to speak, That the old generation had, things that are almost negligible, are that much greater than what the primary, so to speak, takeaway of the latter generation, which I thought was an interesting uh, idea. Not related really to what we have over here unless we say, well, Adams was all fingernails, so imagine how much greater, how much greatness he had. But regardless, there is a lot of really interesting stuff on all the nail literature but I think we could we could stop there. And finally, we have the fourth blessing where we say Hamavdil ben the Almighty separates between holy and mundane, between light and darkness, between Israel and the nations, between the seventh day and the six days of creation. I think this is almost like a another inspiring thing to take with us as we begin the week. You know, if you look at it, it compares four things to each other. Holiness, light, Shabbos, and the Jewish nation on one hand. And these four things are separated from the other four things. The mundane, the darkness, the six days of creation, and the rest of the nations. Our nation is as different from the other nations... As Shabbos is from Tuesday, as light is from darkness, as holiness is from the mundane. What this means is, is that we have an innate affinity for holiness. There's something about us that is still in the garden, so to speak. That's still Shabbat. It's Shabbat's over. But we're still here and we're taking the Shabbat with us throughout the week. And finally, I want to end with an interesting question. You know, if this is such a sad part of the week, why are we drinking celebratory wine? Wine is always associated with celebration, with happiness. And here, we're talking about the fact that we lost this, and we lost that, and we lost the extra soul, and we're kicked out of the garden. Why are we celebrating with wine? So one of the commentaries I saw said, yes, we lost it all, but we're still separate. I want to speculate that maybe what this means is that we actually know the way back to the garden. Once you know what's holy and what's mundane, what's light and what's darkness, and there's no, so to speak, interspersing, intermixing of these two, once you're able to identify the light from the darkness, once you have the separation, you already have everything you need to restore the shabbat, to restore Adam pre-sin, to get back into the garden, to cover your body so to speak once again entirely with its protective material. And therefore, the knowledge of the havdalah is indeed something to celebrate. We had shabbat, we had the light, we had the garden. We had a realm of total holiness, and now we've been flung back into the dark and terrifying world, but our nation is still connected to that light. And because we know that, and we know what's light and what's darkness, we can take some of the Shabbat with us, and we could create, so to speak, an environment where every day is indeed infused with the Holy Spirit of Shabbat. As always, my email address is rabbimobajimba.com I look forward to any questions, any comments, and of course, any feedback.